Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down we dead. We women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building. Simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. Life will not be contained. Life breaks free. Words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Hello and welcome. This is Bite the Pen. I'm Jen Hansen, and sitting across from me is Miss Charlotte Martinez. Hello, Charlotte. Hi, Jen. Hi. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Good. We are... This is episode two of Aristotle and the final episode of Aristotle. And I realized after we uploaded the video last time that we never even like talked about what we were trying to do on the oh, podcast yeah, yeah. the mission statement yes we forgot all about yeah we were just so eager to get started that we didn't like put all of our ducks in a row and i'm sure to our uh, listeners credit i'm sure everyone caught on pretty well i just kind of thought that maybe we could talk a little bit about what each of us is trying to do um, and how that sort of creates the whole yes um w-h-o-l-e not H-O-L-E. <laughs> uh, like digging holes, too. <laughs> For some reason, one of the guys on that podcast that I like, last podcast on the left, he likes, like, digging holes and, like, graves, and he likes, like, bones and shit. He's really funny. But so they always make fun of him because they're like, you would like digging a hole, wouldn't you? And I was like, yeah, because he enjoys that. It just seems kind of weird to That's- me. But- very strange i don't know about your hobby but um i like gardening i don't know about digging holes but i mean you dig some holes when you garden oh yeah but mine has purpose (laughs) no offense uh podcast sure but our goal right yes our goal is to explore storytelling in as many formats as we can find we can throw in i mean we'll talk about other things too oh yeah like the concept of like video games maybe like mm-hmm. how to how to write a video game comic books tv yeah gosh. i mean there's a lot of avenues we can explore yeah if we want to you're right oh my gosh <laughs> it's just i think our go-to what like what i'm hearing is that our go-to you know mine is movies and yours is books yes so i think for the most part those will be like our reference points good but i think we can explore obviously other things and you know i'm open to exploring things that other people are interested in yeah this would be a good opportunity to bring in some guest speakers on those subjects because then we can learn something (laughs) what a concept (laughs) did you want to talk about how uh, each of us are focusing on a particular aspect of storytelling absolutely you okay i found a great can i mention the name that i found absolutely uh neoteric neoteric that's well that's what we how we think it's right (laughs) modern times modern culture Kind of being up to date with everything. Not that you have to be like aware of everything that's going on, but it's to your credit that you're totally involved in what's happening in the world. You can read about it and you know how to comment on it because you know how others are viewing it or what others are thinking about. I don't know. Jump in here. What? You know what you do. Why am I telling you what you do? I like it. It was nice. I was like, oh, thanks. I try. I try. But yeah, I, I, I think when it comes to social issues is what 
I would call it like I don't feel like I know much about pop culture for instance I've seen Lady Gaga and I think she's a white lady <laughs> but like I don't I couldn't recognize her music that's you know true I mean? that's something very separate You're yeah right. that's pop culture yeah. yeah and I just I know nothing whenever we play games have game night and it's pop culture stuff I'm like um <laughs> she's a singer you know um but in terms of like social issues I do my best to keep an eye on what's going on, mainly via Twitter, but also other news sources about the issues that interest me as opposed to the issues, all the issues, because it's frankly just too big of a bag. Oh, right. I think trans rights are great. That didn't sound genuine, but they do. I think that it's a very important topic, but I don't have an experience in that. And so I'm going to do my best not to speak for anyone in that situation. But your own experience and your own opinions, which I think should be talked about here. Totally. I think that, you know, LGBTQ, for instance, covers a lot of different things. And I can talk about asexuality and I can talk about being gay and I can talk about knowing gay people, but I can't necessarily speak on behalf of anyone that I'm not you know what I mean exactly or anything that I'm not so that's the like fine line everything that I watch tends to go through filters that have to do with social issues or subverting a concept rather than taking part in the stereotype and then you are awesome a hermit that (laughs) No longer pays attention to news, (laughs) but it's kind of true. I really, I pushed away all social media and news kind of, well, I guess it was right after college, but it was, I think it was really messing me up. I was so much of an empath that I was overwhelmed because of course the world was going to, you know what? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I, and I felt sick. It was making me sick. I was too connected to people and to culture and, and I was trying to make it all better for everybody. I'm like, oh, my God, who can do that? Nobody can do that. So I need to just get away from it all. And it actually helps quite a bit. Totally. And don't get me wrong. I still want to know if there's like a fire in my backyard, Jen. <laughs> You're going to tell me that, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I don't I don't need to know. It's terrible to say, but I don't need to know those things anymore. I think I can be involved in a subject, especially if you tell me what's going on when I ask about it. And I can read articles and I, I know how to do research now in a, in a way that doesn't overwhelm me is the point. Otherwise, I actually really enjoy reading. And it was always my love in high school. And, and when I found classics in high school, I was like, oh, my God, where was this my whole life? This was like my senior year of high school. I love that because you, you were kind of in these AP classes that you had... I mean, to some degree, you were given an opportunity, but it was also late. Exactly. In your experience, because you've always loved that. Exactly. You were challenged a whole lot. And then once I found it, it was like, oh, yeah, I need to read more of this. Mm -hmm. And now I now I understand that it is kind of like a like a highbrow thing to do. It's like, oh, you're reading Jane Austen or you're you're into Tolkien. And I mean, I yeah, but it's true. It's because I started off late and I I really want to live in these these worlds right now because they speak to me. That doesn't make you, I'm just saying, like, that doesn't make you a dick. What makes you a dick is how you talk to people about that. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? You can talk to people about it in different ways where you're not like, ugh, you don't know this? That's, you haven't read this? It's like, true. okay. That's true, because I am more fa- uh, fascinated with collective unconscious, what Joseph Campbell talks about, uh, mythology, folklore, like specific culture tales is is my thing. 
And I don't know why classics always seem to to get me into that realm of transcending, you know, the scholarly environment into the unconscious environment. It's awesome. So I think that's why I like, yeah, so I like, I like those topics. I feel like I don't, I'm not an expert, like you said. I can talk about my own experiences and how much I've really lived in those particular worlds, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to be an expert by any means. I started late and I, I still don't have as much time to read as I like, but I would like to talk about storytelling through those channels. I don't think anyone should really profess to being an expert at this point or at any near point in the future. I mean, all we can do is explore it and see what we come up with. And I think it works really well because as we know, we're opposites. And I think getting that, I think what makes it unique is that we're going to be providing to each other more than anybody else necessarily a full understanding of something, Mm -hmm. whether it's a story or a book about story. To understand both sides of it, to it only improves it, as right. opposed to just knowing one side. Yeah. I know a lot of LGBTQ books that you can get for cheap or free on Kindle that are just horrible. <laughs> I mean, they're horrible. <laughs> like, they're not even... Like, there's fan fiction bad, and this is like... This is like, you didn't even read it over. Oh, my god! Like, I just don't understand that, but... <laughs> You know, I think, and then there's the opposite where somebody just gets too far into, is in like enraptured by literature and just goes for that and doesn't sort of insert any sort of tangible modern or not even modern, just like modern idea, Ah. including diverse characters, for instance, is a very simple way to include, to be inclusive. Good. Yeah. So this is a great point. So I, I might focus on w- what people call classics, even though I guess I'm not I'm not even talking about just classics anymore. Like I said, it'll be myth, folklore. We'll get into all of that. But it's it's how you transcend those stories to, to today, even our current culture, how we can interpret those stories now in what's happening to us. Yeah. It's crazy to me. Not crazy. It's just it's interesting to me how little a lot of people know about both subjects, both ways of looking at story or both. It's not even ways. They're they're part of one whole that some people or, or even popular books are written very poorly or movies that are created very poorly yeah. when there's so much potential Yes, um, to be something better. And that's the like pessimistic L.A. person in me that's like it's just because of money, you know, and I do think that that's true. Mm. There's a little bit more freedom in books. But only to a degree. I mean, it's still very specific. If you don't fit into a certain category, then you can't get published unless you self-publish. Oh, yeah. It's terrible. And and the fact that movies are reaching more people now, that's kind of the point, right? Is to share the stories with a good amount of people so things can start changing. Right. I think it's harder, at least in our generation, to say, like, everybody read this book now. Having good reference, reference points, I think, is important. Um, and I'm glad that we started with Aristotle's Poetics, even though it's for screenwriters. I thought that was kind of a fun way to start this off. Yes. And there was a lot to ingest. Mikey T, man. Oh, man. But I'm also looking forward to reading Joseph Campbell and maybe even others who we know are used in storytelling, but aren't necessarily 
of storytelling. I'm thinking of like Jung, Carl Jung. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I was like, yeah, we can go in, even into subjects, into like psychology and mm-hmm. theology. and That would be fun. Yeah. I'd like to do theology at some point. <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. I'm sure there's so many reference books. And you're right. We would have to kind of hone in on, right. on the story aspect of those categories. Right. But I'm sure they exist. I'm really fascinated to do things like Jules Verne, Treasure Island, Peter Pan. Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our, our childhood psychology I'm super interested in. And then we have the opportunity of looking at all the things that have been adapted from the original concept of Pan, right? The where they messed up. And where they messed up. <laughs> Some of the, yeah, the feats that didn't pan, <laughs> pan out. Get it? <laughs> Sorry. Plenty. But yeah, so we could spend probably more than one episode even on Peter Pan alone. Oh yeah, um, easily. You had you had a few things. Let's talk about what you want to talk about. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, I think even just within subcategories, there's elements of story that we resonate with or are anchored by yeah. in some cases. So my thing with Jurassic Park and Jurassic World being that it's one of the only female-oriented franchises um, out there. So there's a whole lot of things I want to talk about that have to do with feminism. Yeah. And, and it's super subtle. Because if, I, if you would have told me that without you explaining what you meant, I would have been like, no, it's not. Yeah. Jurassic Park, Jurassic World. Uh, no, it's not. Right. And yeah, you have a great argument. I, yeah. It, just because we don't expect it doesn't mean that it's not there. And I think that's the importance of, for me, representation yeah. is a huge, it's hugely important to me because it does make a difference and we know it makes a difference and yet there's still this lack of representation right some tv shows maybe might be talked about yeah i definitely think we'll talk about i mean i live my life through tv i was raised by television so great it's best babysitter (laughs) (laughs) i yeah i don't know i i i love movies but i do think that tv has always been my true love because it's harder and it's what I would consider the middle ground between a book and a movie and I think it takes a lot more energy and ability to create a successful show and knowing when to end a show and you get to see in a lot of ways you get to see where people want money spent Mm -hmm. and where the companies want to spend their money which are usually conflicting Resuming Aristotle Part 2, we will be looking at character development. Thank you, Google. I don't, I don't know why I made Google. You're welcome. <laughs> so one of the things I want to talk about is character development. Um, he talks about how there are four points of character development, according to Aristotle. And he labels them as, one, make them good enough that we can root for them. Which is pretty, I mean, it's pretty basic stuff. These are rules I think everybody who has written before knows, but they're good to like remember. Two was make them, quote, appropriate, which means to give them characteristics that make sense for the type of person they are. Three, make them human, which means to give them flaws, quirks, and quirks that make us believe they exist. Number four, whatever characteristics you do give them, make sure you keep them there throughout the length of the screenplay. Um, So to be consistently inconsistent. Again, very simple, didn't you think? I mean, yeah, but you're right. If you're if you're thinking like, oh, I'm going to create a character, 
um, oh, I got to make them do this and that and that. Or it's like, or think about what you do as a human being and your character becomes pretty, you know, innate. It's true. Well put. It's good to have the list in front of you. Definitely. And then he goes on to talk about the five principles of life, according to Aristotle. The first one is a nutritional life. Um, the food, what they eat, when, and like my example is overeating. If they're bulimic, then that's going to tell us something. If they're an overeater, that'll tell us something about the character as a whole. Can you think of a character that you really get to know through food? I know. It's kind of maybe any show about chefs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess Ratatouille comes to mind. Just the way that the mouse, the rat, the mouse, wow, (laughs) it's in the title. The rat, like, loves food. Tells us a lot about how he wants to live a refined life, not a dirty rat life. That's his words, not my my words, okay? Yeah, that's a good point. I like that example. And that becomes a a key part of it, too. It's not just, like, in the background. But I think it can be in the background as well. It's just not in that one. <laughs> and it, and it, yeah, I was going to say it, different, it differentiates him from his family who do eat garbage. He's the only one who's like, oh, if you try this with this, it becomes an experience. Right. Hence his identity. I love that movie. Two is desiring life, which means desire. So what a character desires. It's pretty simple. Everybody wants something. It's true. Well put. I can't think of an example of that either. It's not good. <laughs> I don't know if this counts, but like Aladdin... He desires a life that's not a street rat. Aww. Again with the rats. I don't know what's going on with rats. <laughs> There's a theme. I like it. Street rat doesn't want to be a rat anymore. <laughs> I don't know. That would It's just a random example that came to mind. Totally. But I like it. I think we should try using all Disney oh my God. examples okay. with these. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> what's the next one? What do we got? Let's try it. Sensitive life. That's the five senses, um, including POV. My example is not Disney, so I guess oh. I'm going to have to think of a different Oh, one. no, 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 just tell me, tell me. Okay. I was just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, my example is Donnie Darko because, he, you know, there's all kinds of things happening to him, and you see that as an audience through him, and then you also see it from the outside where you don't see anything happening. So I think it's a really good highlight of how the senses can be used. And the fourth one is locomotion. Um, that's physical movement characters. A good Disney one is Hunchback, right? Oh, yeah. Because he's he's the one that, even in the book, I was saying originally, um, he, uh, Vic, Victor Hugo has him swinging from all the buttresses and climbing the, the staircase. I mean, he's he, he has to compensate all of his strength, his upper body strength, because he's been, like, ringing bells all day long. Dang. But then the added fact that he doesn't have one eye, right. he, visually he can't do much. And then, of course, he's lost his hearing because of the bell ringing. Of course. So he's all sorts <laughs> of messed guy. up. <laughs> And he has to compensate. So right. him as a character is fascinating. Disney kind of simplifies all of that, but in Disney the book. simplifying? <gasps> never. <laughs> they would never do that. But you really liked the book, right? I, I did. I liked parts of it. I mean, you know Victor Hugo. He goes on all these rants about really specific things and pages and pages of description of the the edifice itself and i'm like okay i get it this church is magnificent we don't want it to die i get it i get it i get it so the disney version is much more entertaining in my opinion so plus there's musical numbers of course yeah Yeah. what was that book um madame bovary Uh, it's one of those books that i just i love and he's one of the the few authors can't remember his name that i felt knew how to write female characters but when i was reading it it was literally like every other chapter is either action and then in the next chapter goes to description of like how the terrace looks i just don't give a fuck 
at all. But so if it just if they had cut out all of those chapters, it'd be like a novella, but it would have been perfect. But I think because at the time, and because that's what authors think that they should do. Yeah, that's kind of catering to to things at the time people wanted to hear, which makes sense for Victor Hugo as well. At the time, those things were accepted because they were highbrow readers. Right. And they would be like, oh, look at me. I'm reading this great passage that goes on forever. Right. About something that doesn't matter to the story at all. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I don't think I've read Madame Bovary. I've never read um, Hunchback. Hunchback. (laughs) That's okay. It all works out. It totally works out. (laughs) Anyway, um, so number five is capacity for rational thought, um, which is basically how rational or or irrational your character is and how that affects the story or everything around them. That one's kind of, I mean, what do you you call it? It's a... (laughs) We use your words. <laughs> I mean, it's, it it means what it says. I mean, it right. Um, it means what it says. Yeah. No, I like that. It means what it says. You know. <laughs> Give me a second. Hold on. It is called explicit. No. Yeah. Implicit. Implicit. Explicit. Explicit. Yeah. <laughs> Imp- yeah. Explicit. That's still not the word. No, it's not. But I I got you. Uh, explicit. Is that what you just said? Yeah. <laughs> explicit. Yeah. No, that's not it. <laughs> Anyway, you know what we're talking about. It speaks for itself. <laughs> we're gonna okay. cut all that. <laughs> so I, I would call I would call that first half um, good notes for when you're first starting your character out. But when we want to get into the depth of character, complex character, there's terms that Mikey Chi starts talking about in very disorganized ways. But I think hashtag this is truth. hashtag truth. It gets to the core of us relating to the character on a, on a deeper note. And he, the actually, there's a quote that he starts off with, is that ancient Greeks believed it was every human being's moral obligation to pursue his or her own happiness. Mm-hmm. And I love that quote because it has the verb to pursue, which itself is an action. And this propels your character into complex plot immediately, right? They want something. How are they going to get it? It's pretty simple. So if you have that baseline in mind the rest of it is pretty natural so this is where i kind of differ <laughs> i differ a little bit in his term in his use of terms because it's what prevents the character from getting what they want that is interesting mikey t describes tragic deed and undeserved misfortune as the same thing which is the choices the wrong reasoning or the errors of judgment that the characters make that cause their own downfall right so like if a character is super arrogant and then gets in too deep that would be his own fault because he was being too arrogant right okay um but what i would argue is that tragic that would be the definition of tragic flaw okay because like you said it's the character's flaw Mm -hmm. it's their choice it's their judgment that causes their downfall so i would actually question then what if it's something that is out of the character's control Mm -hmm. like color of their skin their gender natural disaster Things that they don't decide, but it happens to them anyway. Mm-hmm. So my examples, of course, are two of my favorite movies. Oh, good. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Tragic flaw, Lord of the Rings. The main character, Frodo. There's I've actually heard of him. Have you heard of Frodo? <laughs> He's super small, apparently. Oh, small. He's tiny. Oh, that's not what I heard. And he, he comes from this, like, peaceful little place, and Aww. everybody else is at war. Like and Canada? Like, what else? <laughs> <laughs> Aww. Like Canada. Okay. But there is a scene in Lord of the Rings where he chooses to bear the ring. Mm. I mean, it's a whole thing where he's like, no, 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 I will be the ring bearer. So anything that's following, I mean, don't get me wrong. We all we all vote for him and we all feel like we should be 
as brave to make that decision, but it's a decision. So if he dies, you know, it was it was him. It was his choice. Interesting. And we do see that. He, we see that the ring is too powerful and he isn't able to destroy it on his own at the very end. But again, his choice. Right. His judgment, his, his ability not to fight power. Um, it's interesting. It's almost like we have less sympathy, if not more empathy. Meaning that, like, we personally, I feel like I could get behind that. And if he died in that journey because it was partially his own choice, that it's noble as opposed to tragic. Right. Whereas if somebody's, you know, like in uh, San Andreas Fault, if somebody just gets killed in that film because of a flood or because of a tidal wave, you're, it, I mean, it's a action film, so it's not, you don't feel super emotionally connected to it, but there's still, I think, a, it's more realistic in some ways that they didn't get a choice. Right. And that is more tragic sometimes, or a lot of the times. Cancer, you know, is something that you don't usually pick to happen to you. So when it does, or you see that in a character, it's a different reaction than um, than Braveheart when he gives his own life for the cause. Because you're like, fuck yeah, man. I wish I would do that too, you know? Exactly. And Mikey T does say that as long as it produces pity, then you're doing it right. So I'm glad you said that because then my second example is something that is not their choice, mm-hmm. hidden figures, um, Catherine Johnson, the main character, right, born African-American, but also born brilliant enough to work for NASA. And it's it's all of her choices to stay there despite discrimination. We pity that because it isn't her fault that she's being discriminated against. Um, but it is her choice to, to remain despite that discrimination. Mm. So that's what makes us root for her and pity her at the same time. Do you have the exact definition of pity? I can ask Google. Okay, let's ask Google because <laughs> I'm curious Okay, how yeah. it's defined. Okay, Google. Definition of pity. Here's the definition of pity. The feeling of sorrow and compassion caused by the suffering and misfortunes of others. Okay. Even okay. the word misfortune is in, is in the there. Definition. Yeah. Okay. I, for some reason, when I hear the word pity, I almost feel like it's being sorry for someone, which I think is a much different, uh, that's almost like a belittling emotion. Do you know what I mean? Like you can feel what somebody else is going through. You feel it in your, your soul or your heart or whatever. Uh, Whereas pity is like, oh, that poor thing. Like it's on the surface almost. almost. Like you don't actually mean it. Yeah. yeah. Or it just has this like weird power dynamic to it that I don't like. Um, so I'm glad that that's not actually that's me projecting whatever I learned that from. No, and, and you're not. right. I heard I heard the word pity too, and that's what I thought. But I guess at Mikey T's time, it maybe they were using the definition more like, no, we we feel the misfortune when it's undeserved. Right. So they're using it in con- that context. But you're right. I don't I don't like it. it I don't either. We've changed the definition <laughs> already as uh, yeah. a society. I would I think so anyway. I'm not sure if that's true everywhere, but. It's definitely true in our lives. What about empathy then? Empathy works. I think being empathetic is the key to life. So I definitely think that's closer, if not what it is. Um, We're going to change it. We're going to say whatever (laughs) allows us to empathize with our main character. Right. So we'll call it tragic flaw, number one, where it's their choice, or undeserved misfortune, where it's not their choice, but we are still able to empathize with their situation. So tell me. When have you experienced undeserved misfortune, Miss Martinez? Personally? Yeah, personally. You, as a person. Oh, as a maybe woman oh. in a field dominated oh. by men? 
What? No. That's crazy. That's only in fiction <laughs> that happens where I'm discriminated against because of that. What? Oh, do tell. Do tell. <laughs> well, I mean, in it, 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 okay. For, for our time, even though we, we like to think that we're a little more evolved, I still think there's a lot of old mentalities, especially in gender, where we just can't get past. Even if, even if we talk about it, there's this really deep rooted feeling that men somehow need to either impress compensate keep power but then you kind of feel like a hero when you do you recognize it right I mean have you had that experience yeah I think so I you know me I go between trying to be the bigger person and just unleashing anger because I feel that both are acceptable um, when you're being treated that way or when I'm being treated that way. They they did a study recently. They took the exact same resumes and changed the name, you know, basically John Doe and Jane Doe. And the John Doe was hired like eight times more than Jane Doe, even though it was the exact same resume. Oh, my gosh. And so it just goes to show that there is an inherent sexism, mainly uh, for men to be benef- benefited by it. Right. That isn't, you know, there's still, of course, sexism towards men. Um, I corrected somebody the other day for being sexist towards men. And ah. I was like, hey, that's not cool, man. But it goes both ways. Right. You know? And it's it's nice to be able to correct people sometimes when they're being sexist to men because I get tired of correcting other people when they're being sexist to women. Yeah. It's but I, equal. Yeah. I also feel like it's my, it's my form of activism. I am not going to march in the streets. So, I mean, I could and I have before, but it's just not my go-to. My go-to would be to... We've we've talked about this to change small things in people's lives until they kind of just sort of adopt it and then you get to see it. It's amazing. It's really amazing. And that's the consistent. Oh, would you say that to a woman or, oh, hey, you know, that's not totally chill that you said that, you know, right. it's very small things. But And I'm glad that there's a fad, not a fad. Um, there's a lot of movies coming out now about you know, female power and it just being innately equal. We're not even focusing on the fact that they're women, but that they're doing the same things as men, but they happen to be women. That's all I've ever asked. Right. And it's amazing. And then one day I hope to see gay women having that same, that same sort of footing in the industry. But as a female first, it's like, fuck yeah. It's about fucking time. That was a big sidebar. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. I'm glad because we were talking about hidden figures and okay. what an appropriate uh, oh my God. <laughs> offshoot of that, right? Such a good movie. Inspiring movie as always. Everyone we've talked to that has seen it loves it, which I think is amazing. That's I what I mean. There's a call. There's a call yeah. to see to see the fact that we need to recognize women in history, acknowledge it, therefore we can move forward and not keep ignoring it, which I feel like... We Does keep no kind of doing. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, no, it's solved. You know, we're just about there. And not not really. No. Which actually is a good segue to my next half of complex character, which is what the character does to overcome the misfortune. Mm. Um, Do tell. And according How to Mikey T, <laughs> according to Mikey T, it's a lot of moral. The terms he uses are moral something. Like moral contradiction is one that he throws in there somewhere, which is kind of in a no man's land place. <laughs> the hero is right to take action, but at the same time, there is something morally wrong with that action. So any war movie is a good example of a moral contradiction. But it's usually what turns the hero's misfortune into fortune. I can't really think. Well, he uses gladiator. 
We need to watch that. I guess we're we gonna do. have a gladiator movie party. <laughs> but I think it would be true of any war movie. I was thinking like Avengers. Is there anything like that in Avengers or any of the Marvel films? Oh yeah, I'm sure they all do it in Marvel. The villains are pretty flat though sure. in Marvel, is what I would argue. So when they die, it's like, well, good. They were just drones yeah. anyway, or you know. What about like the uh, the one where they're lifting the city? I felt like they had. Didn't they have like a a moral choice to make there that they either had to like there was something ah. there right i don't remember it so exactly. yeah where they they just destroyed the island because it would save the lives of everybody underneath or everybody still on on the land right or they try to save this this small amount of people it's kind of like what spock says right oh my God. Uh, the need of the few no the need of the many whoa i was gonna get that one wrong the need of the many outweigh the need of the few yeah. or the one Oh, we're the one. But isn't that what we like to see? The fact that, no, that's not acceptable. And, of course, it happens in Star Trek so many times where he's like, no, Spock. Oh, this is Captain Kirk speaking. Oh, okay. To Spock. <laughs> well, he's like, no, you are important. We're going to save you over uh, all of these people. And usually they end up saving both. Like he's quick to want to sacrifice himself because it, he sees the importance of the many. Right, right. Whereas, like, the audience wants to see creative thinking. Like, no, we don't accept, we don't accept those numbers. We want to we want to change it and we want to save everybody, which yeah. is kind of a Marvel scenario where they do totally. end up saving both because they don't accept one or the other. As, yeah. One of my favorite characters in Stargate SG-1 is Teal'c. And that's his whole thing. His whole thing is like he's a good soldier. He he's used to sacrificing. So that's always his go to. And his captain, his new captain, is always like, no, no, no. Let's try this thing out. You know, yes. it's very creative thinking. It's a great way of putting it. Right. And I like I like there's a duo pattern there, too, where you have the logical Definitely. sidekick or the emotional sidekick. I mean, you know, two exactly. two halves of the whole. You need both. Interesting. That's yeah. a big that's a big trope in storytelling as well. That's a good segue then into moral choice. He doesn't actually term it like this. It's not moral choice in the book. But I kind of came up with this idea because it's it's whatever choice that the character makes that finally gets him to either fortune or to back where he started with something discovered or new knowledge. So in Lord of the Rings, even though we don't visually see him choosing to destroy the ring after he couldn't do it, this is Frodo, we do see that Sam, his best friend that stayed with him the whole journey. Is the emotional a, one. The emotional <laughs> one. Oh my gosh. Well, at this point, Frodo's like lost it completely. That's true. <laughs> but um, I like that. Sam is is the emotion. The heart. The heart of the team. Yeah. The heart of the fellowship. Because he goes, oh my gosh, that's a great revelation I just had. <laughs> Sam, I could witness in it. Lord of the Rings, totally goes against all of the the warnings that happens with the idea of a ring bearer having to bear the ring by himself. He He's like, no, I'm not accepting that. I'm going with you. Oh my gosh, right. he's totally the Kirk in, in Spock. Yeah, in the Spock and Kirk. Because he's the one that is able to to destroy or to help Frodo destroy the ring even right. though it turns out like this weird fight scene that actually happens yeah, before but I mean the the idea is there that the heart of Frodo needed to help him destroy a powerful ring so the moral choice then is that Sam did go with him and together they were able to destroy the ring interesting okay the moral choice was that he went with them despite warnings not to right? okay cool um so we feel a catharsis Mm-hmm. Knowing that he went against the rules and it worked out per- like really we well. We needed it. <laughs> we needed it to fight the war, to win the war. Right. Um, Catherine Johnson's moment, I mean, it, you could argue that she had a lot of choices that she made to keep 
to keep working for NASA. Could you think of one moment that seemed like a moral choice where she kind of flipped her fortune for the, well, maybe even the big speech that she gives, right? Where mm-hmm. she, she's had enough and it results in the the desegregation of the bathrooms. I wonder if that's even a moment where we, we see that it was her moral choice to, to point it out to them, to confront the problem. Right. To make it in part a theme, right, too? Yeah. Can you think of a another good example, moral choice, the final choice that will allow them to overcome their misfortune and brings about catharsis is what I wrote down as a definition. What what how what would that be in Back to the Future? Ah, the Rolls-Royce. Yeah, so the moral choice in Back to the Future, we're presented with this scenario in 2 and 3 only where Marty's future is destroyed because of a prideful choice he makes to race against this, you know, douchebag. <laughs> and when he races, he gets hit by a car. Hence the Rolls Royce reoccurring theme that we see in the second and the third. He destroyed his future because of his pride. We see it in the second one. In the third one, he's presented with the same scenario. But because we went on this emotional journey with him, he's learned something. He's discovered something as the hero. His choice then is to not race. And then therefore, all of these future this the future that he's seen for himself is erased in movie two. yeah right right yeah so that that for us is very cathartic because we've seen the character change so even under the same circumstances he's made a moral choice and we want we as the audience i love this quote from mikey t by the way is that the audience wants to see right and wrong addressed because everyone feels that this gets at the heart of what it means to be human so we see him make the right choice here Right. And therefore, he's rewarded with a better future. Right? Yeah. But y- and we're so proud of him. You And you were the one to, to, to kind of capture that Rolls Royce moment, right? Where you're like, oh, my gosh, that's where it comes. It's in Back to the Future. And they keep mentioning Rolls Royce. So for the viewers, we're like, oh, we know what that means when you say Rolls Royce. We want to see something morally done. Oh, because because he mentions it in the book. But he doesn't he doesn't call it that. I don't know if it was on purpose or an accident, but that chapter is called the Rolls Royce of something or other. Right. And then the first example I thought of was the Rolls Royce in Back to the Future. Now it could just be a Rolls Royce because it's a Rolls Royce and that's a pretty specific thing. Um, but I thought it was very interesting that that fit right in there. But he never said Back to the Future, he so did I don't know if that's what he meant or not. But that's what if I ever read that chapter again, that's what I would think of immediately right. because that's what the theme of the chapter was. Like the moral contradiction, the moral choice, all of that is mentioned in that chapter. Yeah. So you're so clever. You're like, oh, Rolls Royce, Back to the Future. <laughs> yeah, that's not. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I'll take the compliment. <laughs> Can you think of anything else that he kind of mentions to make the character more relatable, more... I think, and I think we mentioned this at at one point, um, or we talked about it, that it honestly probably would have been better just to leave out character development in his book because he doesn't hit it very hard. He doesn't give any examples for the character development, so the, the four points of character development or the five principles of life, which would have just been sort of nice. Not because he had to, but it just would have been like, oh, okay, awesome. That's an example. I can think of it. But again, his examples, we don't know most of his examples anyway. So I think it would have just been as beneficial to just cut out the character development parts because it doesn't really add to anything. So I wanted to see sort of what your overall reaction of Aristotle is or was or is. Is. (laughs) Is. It is and was the same thing. (laughs) I, I don't blame it entirely because it's outdated somewhat now. Right. And the examples can always be a lot better for maybe us millennials as well. 
or just anyone or anybody i mean film changes and it develops so quickly now it just needs it i mean classics will still be classics but they also maybe won't be (laughs) right and a lot of disorganization it was hard to navigate even when i'm thinking of like complex character there are so many chapters to go back and forth between yeah and a lot of the time he wouldn't call it the same thing more than once super frustrating (laughs) it it was it was frustrating i think especially because it's sort of marketed as a guide for screenwriters i feel like if you're doing a book like that you have to be pretty explicit in what you're saying yeah and he doesn't achieve that again we didn't really talk about it but the chorus his whole chapter on the chorus was like awesome i loved it and it was very easy to follow whereas like looking at the action idea i i didn't understand it and i it was all spread out all over the book and the only way i really understood it was by practicing my own which he doesn't recommend. I mean, it would have been also nice, I think, in some cases where you'd be like, you know what? Sometimes you just got to practice these things. Go find your favorite films, your favorite five films, and try them out. And I, again, that's not his responsibility. But if he's writing a book... Well, yeah, I was going to say, and if he was smart or if the publisher was smart, I feel like visuals would have been really helpful too. Yeah. Because it is it is very formulaic, what we learn about character, development of script... Like, there's formulas. They've been there forever. And visually, if, if we see symbols of, oh, this is kind of like a hero's journey map, actually. Totally. I mean, you know, Sid Field did the same thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See? He can learn from all these people. Yeah. <laughs> a few diagrams. Right. For some of these topics. Because I feel like he was even lacking in some direction. Yeah. Um, Agreed. Right? Yeah. And then the other help- unhelpful thing or maybe distracting thing was how he was targeting like Hollywood screenwriters specifically. Oh my God. And we see that how he ends every oh chapter. Oh my God. Maybe. Do you want to find an example while oh, I bitch about it? I would love to do that. I can't even. I have no idea whose idea that was, but it's horrifying. There's literally one chapter in this entire book that doesn't end on a stupid ass line. And I get it, like, you're trying to pitch to screenwriters, but also, like, calm your shit down, because it's not good. It's really distracting and pretty, it's just kind of pathetic, to be honest. Read Read an example. Be glad that after putting on the screenwriting armor of the poetics, you can race out into the brutal arena of Hollywood and shout, bring them on. Oh, my God. There's, like, three exclamation marks in that sentence. Oh, my God. Whoever's idea that was, I feel like that wasn't Mike, Mikey T's idea. It just doesn't fit his other writing. Yeah. I feel like maybe his publisher or somebody was like, you should add a line at the end of each. Oh, my God. It feels kind of corny. Yeah. Always trust your heart, man. <laughs> That's terrible. It would piss me off at the end of each chapter. I'm like, ooh, that was an interesting. Oh, fuck no. <laughs> and yeah, I was going to say, if they wanted to re- reach a bigger audience, I feel like their send off would be a lot more like, you try this now or practice this when you watch your next movie. Totally. And again, we're not interested in being a part of the typical industry we're not in LA if we if we were interested in that that's where we'd be and that's just not what we're interested in that shouldn't mean that we can't be a part of this book but that's what that sort of implies is like okay go on to Hollywood now and it just doesn't it takes away from the point which is that I mean I think this is true of film in general and other creative arts but it doesn't matter what you were supposed to learn so much so long as you sort of bring whatever it is that's needed you don't need to have a degree in other words to do this this or that you don't need to have a certain label so much as that you are doing what the work however it is you want to do the work 
and you don't have to fit yourself into what you think they want which i mean once you get to that level they will destroy your script oh yeah and it's no longer you why not tell a great story and then figure out where it needs to go yeah even independent circuits i swear those things are are important to tell the truth sometimes i i'm glad that i spent some time trying to work in the industry and doing different things but i think it would have also been really nice to hear that but you know i was in la so i had opportunities that maybe others didn't i was like one of the youngest people at the screenwriting conference when it first started at um that was at the staples center i mean it was fun and it was cool and a lot of people were very nice and they wanted to help me because i was young and i met some amazing contacts that have sort of helped me shape my writing as i went but I wish at one point somebody would have said, really, it's a business. When it comes down to it, you can write as well as you want with the most creative story. Always a business. And that, that just didn't work for me. I couldn't, I couldn't kill my stories and other people's stories, too. When you're in a writer's room, somebody brings it and then everybody destroys it. And it's to make it, quote, better. But it's, it's to make it more profitable. So I, I'm glad that Netflix is around, uh, like even when they make stupid mistakes, like canceling one day at a time. I'm just rambling now. But. No, I think that's a great point. And production companies are independent now, too. So there's funding for those projects where it's like passion drives, not profit. Yeah. So in examples of some diagrams or for some simplification of character development, especially when they're talking about misfortune, um, Jen actually found a great YouTube clip of um, Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. Vonnegut. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, I didn't actually know he was the one that wrote Slaughterhouse Five. Oh yeah. Which I haven't read. It was recommended in college, but I never did read it. Oh. Hmm. His his clip is really it's funny because he simplifies it a lot, and you, even though you can't see it, he draws a diagram that he says it's able to be fed into a computer. That's how formulaic story is. And I think that's okay because it's the basis of story. Why not have a mathematical way of producing story? Yeah. And it's not like he, yeah, it's not like he's creating this very complex diagram. It's literally, he's got a big pad of paper and a marker and he just shows you, he talks through it as he, as he draws it out. Um, And we can post it on our Twitter as well. So you can, you can, everybody can watch it, but are we going to play the clip? We are. Cool. Here it goes. The whole thing, we call this story man in hole, but it needn't be about a man, and it needn't be about somebody getting into a hole. But it's just a good way to remember it. Somebody gets into trouble, gets out of it again. People love that story. <laughs> they never get sick of it. All right. Another story, also a beautiful curve, and easily fed into a computer called Boy Gets Girl, but it needn't be that. Just a way to remember it. Start on an average day, average person, not expecting anything to happen a day like any other. Find something wonderful, just loves it. Oh, God damn it. (laughs) Got it back again. So I think that's going to wrap it up for Aristotle's Poetics for Screenwriters by Mikey T. We spent like how many hours reading this damn book and comparing notes and trying to understand his various terms for one single thing. And we'll use it as reference going forward. Definitely. I'm very excited to also move into actual material, not just the study of storytelling, but an actual story. So we're going to do Fantastic Beasts, which I'm very excited about. Are you excited? And it's not just part one. 
but part two. And it's not just the movies, it's the screenplays. Oh my god. Oh. <laughs> I meant that as a Screenplays. <laughs> yes. So we have started that, and that's a fun journey that we're on. So we'll do that episode. It'll probably be two episodes, and we'll compare and contrast and go over the different things in Fantastic Beasts. There's a lot of material in Fantastic Beasts, too. If you've seen it, you know what we mean. Until then, we will leave you with some words from Mikey T. It has to do with who I am and what I like. Just be honest with yourself, experiment, and be aware. Instead of write what you know, Aristotle is telling you to write what you truly feel or truly experience in your heart. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> Are you crying? I'm crying. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at BiteThePen, or if you'd like to email us, you can reach us at BiteThePen at gmail.com. If you liked what you heard, please tell your friends. We appreciate everyone who's listening and supporting us. You guys are amazing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>